I'd ask if you could please stand with me for Abel as we read our passage for this morning, continuing again in the Gospel according to Luke. And uh, we are we're in Luke 23, verses 32 to 43. And, and uh, if it, I'm already feeling overwhelmed with what, about the subject matter I have to preach on, so may, may God um, help me. May He help us all as, uh, as we consider... Um, what our Lord and Savior experienced uh, for our sins. Okay, so Luke chapter 23, verses, verses 32 to 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. May the Lord write his eternal truth upon our hearts for his glory and for our edification and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage, this is a passage that is familiar to so many of us. But Lord, may we all see this afresh with spiritual eyes. Work in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit and reveal to us the reality of what was taking place on Golgotha 2,000 years ago. Lord God, once again, I am conscious of my complete and utter inability to communicate these things effectively to make any change in, in my life, let alone the lives of anyone else. Lord, we are dependent on your spirit to do this. Lord, you have decreed that you would work in accordance with your word to accomplish that which you have sent your, work, your word to do. So work in hearts, I pray, for the advance of your kingdom in our hearts. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Please be seated. As a family, we're walking through the book of Proverbs with our kids during our family worship. We, we really want our children to learn wisdom um, at a young age, and we were walking through many passages of Scripture, but, but really feeling as we look at what's happening in the world around us that it's, it's so important, it's vital, that we teach our children biblical wisdom. And as we know, the, the first and most important component of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, the proverb says, is the beginning of wisdom. And one of the key principles of godly wisdom that's found in the Proverbs is to be careful of the company that you keep. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 13, 20. We warn our kids not to choose friends who will lead them astray. But we also warn them that they should not lead others astray. Bad company corrupts good morals, says the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.33. When I was a school teacher, I, I could, we would sometimes receive a, a new student midway through the year. And I could usually tell by morning recess on their first day what kind of student he or she was going to be by the friends that they chose. It's uncanny how the, the naughty kids found each other so quickly. And almost invariably, their behavior would begin to be reflected from the, the choices of friends that they made. 
Choosing worldly friends will pull you further into the world. But choosing worldly friends is also a sign that you've already been pulled into the world. Bad company does corrupt good morals almost all the time. But in our passage this morning, we're going to see the exception that proves the rule. But this passage is actually more than an exception. This passage is exceptional. Speaking of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in, this, in the crucifixion of Jesus, we, we definitely see the, the corrupting influence and spread of sin as wicked men nail Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, to a cross and then mock him in his suffering. However, in the crucifixion, we also see how Christ saves through his suffering with his priestly prayer and the promise of paradise. No matter what the mockers say, clearly Jesus Christ is the Son of God incarnate, the Son of God in human flesh. As I said last week, the the clearest display of God's attributes is at the cross. It's at the cross where we see God's glory most clearly as we we see his his holiness in in the way that that he deals with sin in his Son. We, We see his his wrath over sin. We see his judgment. We see his justice that he pours out on Christ. And in all this, we see God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's omnipotence and omniscience in bringing all these things to pass. So it's clearly at the cross that we we most powerfully see the attributes of God. But the clearest display of man's depravity is also there at the cross as we see what wicked men do to Jesus in, 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 in killing him in, in the, the most inhumane way and then mocking him even as his life ebbed out But we see that there is salvation offered to these depraved men only in the crucifixion of Christ. There is salvation only for anyone, for any depraved man, for any depraved woman in the crucified Christ. And there, right to the end, Jesus Christ was fulfilling his threefold messianic office as prophet priest and king. There were prophets and priests and kings in the Old Testament, and they all pointed to the supreme prophetic office of Jesus Christ, as he is the word of God incarnate. He is the the supreme king of kings and lord of, of lords. He is the supreme high priest as he intercedes for his people, as he offers himself up as the sacrifice for their sins. Listen to J.C. Ryle. During the six hours that our Lord was on the cross, he showed that he possessed full power as the Son of God and that although he suffered, his sufferings were undertaken voluntarily. As king and prophet, he opened the gates of life to the penitent thief and foretold that man's, that man's entry into paradise. As priest, he intercedes in this prayer for those who crucified him. So even in the midst of the un unprecedented and unparalleled agony that Jesus Christ suffered. He offers up a prayer and a promise that will effectively lead to salvation for one individual in that moment and many more in the near future. I see three key points in this passage. First of all, in verses 32 to 34, Jesus prays for the perpetrators. And then in verses 35 to 39, Jesus is mocked by those present. And then in verses 40 to 43, Jesus promises life to one perishing. Again, we're very familiar with these events, but may God help us as we consider afresh the crucifixion of Christ and how it, along with his priestly prayer and his promise of paradise, bring salvation. So first of all, verses 32 to 34, Jesus prays for the perpetrators. 
Pontius Pilate, having been convinced by the Jews to crucify Jesus against his better judgment, had Jesus scourged by Roman soldiers. Then they put the cross beam on Jesus' shoulders and made him carry it as far as he could. Then Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry it for Jesus the rest of the way. A great crowd followed as they mourned and lamented along the way. And now Luke tells us that Jesus was not going to the cross alone, that two others were crucified next to him on that morning. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Verse 32. Again, they were criminals. Literally, one who does evil. Matthew and Mark state that they were robbers. John uses the same word that he uses to describe Barabbas. An insurrectionist. These men were basically terrorists. Under Roman law, they deserved the death penalty. And here's Jesus, crucified between these two wicked men. This is a clear fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12, which was written around 700 B.C., fully 700 years before these events. The prophet Isaiah wrote this down. Isaiah 53, 12, He was numbered among the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. He was numbered among the transgressors. He was, was counted to be a lawbreaker next to these, in the middle of these two criminals. But yet there was something going on here. Far more than a mere crucifixion. Because on that cross, as we're going to discuss more fully as we walk through this passage, yet he bore the sin of many. He bore guilt. He was bore the, the guilt, not his own guilt, but of many, of many others. And even the guilt of you and me. The Jews were convinced that Jesus was a guilty sinner and that death was what he deserved. But God punished Jesus as a sinner to keep guilty sinners from the death that they deserve. So they arrived at the place that is called the skull and there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Skull in Latin is Calvaria, from which we get the name Calvary. In Aramaic, it's Golgotha. You can actually visit the site today. It's just outside the, the northern wall of Jerusalem. And there's a hill, a low hill, that, that if you look at pictures of it, it looks remarkably like a skull. So it's called the place of the skull. There's, it's really strange that there's a bus, there's actually a bus terminal right at the foot of the hill. You could, you could see the, the skull. It's, it's very clearly there. And then these buses parked in front of it. It's a very, very strange sight. Jesus was very likely not crucified at the traditional site inside the city of Jerusalem, inside the city walls, where, where Roman Catholics have, have built a, a gaudy church. It's, it's really, it's actually disturbing to be there. Because it's just so contrary to what Christianity stands for. With all the opulence and the, and the gold. But rather, as the bodies of the animals whose blood was a sacrifice for sin were burned outside the camp. So Jesus suffered outside the gate, outside the walls of Jerusalem to sanctify people with his own blood. Hebrews 13, 11 and 12. Luke and the other gospel writers don't go into detail describing the crucifixion. We talked about it, about it a bit last week. The, the, gospels, the gospel writers simply say that they crucified him. They don't describe the, the pounding of the nails through his wrists and his ankles. They, they don't describe the agony of having to put weight on the, the mangled nerve endings in order to breathe. They don't describe the the slow asphyxiation that takes place as excruciating pain causes the victim's life to slowly ebb out. Why not? Why did they not focus on these physical sufferings? Well, part of the answer is because 
The first recipients of the Gospels were, were very familiar with the horrors of crucifixion. It was, it was common throughout the region because this was the, the chosen way that the Romans would, would kill, would execute the people over whom they, they, they ruled. So people regularly, the Jews regularly saw people executed in this way. They didn't need the details. But for those who were unfamiliar with the agony of crucifixion, people like us, there's a danger of, of focusing too much on the physical sufferings of Christ. You see, the physical pain of crucifixion was not unique to Jesus. Again, many thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. In fact, two, two men were being crucified right next to Jesus. To focus on the physical pain the physical suffering, suffering of Jesus is to detract from the spiritual suffering of Jesus. The physical pain paled in comparison to the pain of the Holy Son of God bearing the guilt of sin. You see, it was on the cross that God the Father punished His Son for every sin that every believer would ever commit, past, present, and future. As Paul says in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by, listen, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The record of guilt that, 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 that you and I have that, that is, was longer than you could imagine before you could even walk. And just continued to be added to throughout your life. That record of guilt, if you are trusting in Christ, that record of guilt has been nailed to the cross. Christ bore your guilt on the cross. He was suffered, he suffered in your place. And so, so we don't focus on the, uh, on the physical because the physical, as, as horrible as it was, was nothing compared to the agony that he suffered as the sinless Son of God becoming the sin-bearer for you and for me. It was on the cross that God the Father would turn his back on God the Son, who would then cry out in the deepest agony he's ever experienced, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. This was the fulfillment of Matthew 22.1 that Tom, Tom read for us earlier. A direct quote. Jesus is consciously fulfilling Psalm 22 when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and Psalm 22, if, if you think that Isaiah was old, Psalm 22 was written around 1000 BC by King David. It's also the fulfillment of, of Psalm 22.16. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Clearly, Christ fulfilled Psalm 22. We'll see this again repeatedly. Isaiah, particularly Isaiah and, and, and Psalm 22 and other Psalms as well that are fulfilled in the death of Christ. It is here on the cross that the innocent one was condemned as a transgressor. Condemned as a transgressor between transgressors. He now became the intercessor. Jesus interceded. Intercession is a prayer that is made on behalf of somebody else. So Jesus here is going to offer up a, a mediatory prayer. This is one of the functions of the high priest. In fact, of all priests, particularly the high priest. Jesus was here fulfilling his messianic office as the archetypal high priest as he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is a further fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12 that I mentioned earlier. He was numbered among the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And again, remember, Isaiah was, was written 700 years prior. 
Now the case can be made here that when Jesus is, is praying like this, he's praying for the Romans because they are the ones who actually did the deed. They're the ones who, who physically pounded the nails into Jesus' wrists and into his ankle. So this could be directly for the, the Romans. Remember, only, only, Luke, only Luke records the, this, this prayer and remember that, that Luke is writing his gospel account to the Roman Theophilus. And so his, his focus is, is writing to a Roman, to a Gentile. And so it makes sense that, that, at least in part, that he's writing to the Romans. Writing this for the benefit of the Romans. And praying this for the benefit of the Romans. Again, the Romans were the ones who carried it out and they had no idea. They had no idea what they were doing. They didn't really know who Jesus was. As I alluded to with the kids, next week we're going to see that at least one Roman, the, the centurion of Luke 23, 47, had his eyes open to recognize who Jesus is and, and possibly a direct answer to this prayer. The Roman soldiers were the ones that cast lots to divide his garments. They, they were the ones who, who gambled over his clothes. In, in John 19, 23 and 24, we see more detail that they say specifically that they divided his garments into four parts and they didn't want to tear his tunic, so they cast lots to decide who got it. Now, now casting lots was, was, kind of, it was gambling. It was kind of like, like rolling dice to, to see who would actually who would, who would win this tunic. And John tells us this is direct, a direct fulfillment Again, of Psalm 22, Psalm 22, 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So I, I do believe that the Romans were in view here, but I also believe the Jews were in view as well, because, because in, this, in this section here, in, under the crucifixion of, of Jesus, Luke's focus has, has thus far been particularly on the culpability of the Jews for the death of Jesus. Repeatedly, remember, Pilate had declared that Jesus was innocent and tried to release him, but, but the Jews protested. The Jewish leaders protested, and they continued, as, as Pilate said repeatedly, Jesus is innocent, I, I want to I release him. They got louder and louder and louder to the point that, that they were on the verge of a riot. And so, Lucas is showing us that it is, it is the Jews who are even arguably primarily responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, on one level, they did actually know who Jesus was because Jesus had told them, told them clearly who he was. But in their willful ignorance, they denied it. They denied who Jesus really was. As Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Their spiritual eyes were darkened. They did not know who Jesus was in, in the fullness as they killed him. And even in his agony on the cross, even as he is suffering there on the cross, again, not just the physical suffering, but the spiritual suffering, he is praying for his enemies, for Roman and Jew alike. Jesus is fulfilling his own command from Luke 6.35, love your enemies. And in this, he was providing the, the supreme example for us to follow. Stephen followed in Jesus' example as he prayed for the Jews who were stoning him to death in Acts 7.60. As he was dying, he fell on his knees and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 2.21-24 that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we, who, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That's another quote from Isaiah 53. So Jesus had commanded that we love our enemies and Jesus is demonstrating what love for enemies looks like. Friend, are you following the example of Christ? Are you loving your enemies? Are you praying for your enemies? 
Now, of course, you and I can't love our enemies anywhere near to the extent that Jesus loves his enemies, to the extent that he loves you. But again, are you following in the example of Christ? Do you pray for your enemies? Who is your enemy? Probably the person you're thinking of right now. By God's grace, commit to praying for that person. Take a moment, even now, even while you're sitting here, to pray for that person. Oh, wait. Commit to following in the example of Christ. Pray for your enemies and watch what God does in your heart and possibly even in their heart. But far more than being an example, Jesus was providing the means whereby his enemies could be forgiven. In asking his father to forgive his enemies, Jesus was not asking God the father to overlook their sin. God cannot overlook sin, even the so-called little sins. Or else he cannot be a just judge. The just judge must punish sin. God cannot overlook any sin, especially this one, where these men were crucifying God the Son incarnate. No, Jesus is not asking his father to overlook their sin. He was asking his father to count their sin against himself instead. Jesus is asking God to count the sin of these wicked men against the Son. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19-21, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And in verse 21, we have the gospel in one verse. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we could be the righteousness of God. God, we talked about this a moment ago, God made Christ to be the sin bearer, counted as guilty, so that those who trust in Christ can be credited with his righteousness and counted to be righteous themselves. That's the gospel. That's the core of the gospel. That the Father punishes the Son in the place of wicked sinners like you and me, as we trust in Christ and credits the perfect righteousness of Christ to us. This is glorious. There is no other religion on the planet that has anything like this. Every other religion on the planet is works-based. Do this and you will be saved. And it says Christianity is works-based as well, but Jesus Christ did all the work. You can do nothing to earn your salvation. You receive it simply as a gift by faith in Jesus Christ and all that is accomplished on your behalf. So Jesus Christ prayed as part of his messianic office as high priest, even from the cross, even for the salvation of his enemies. Jesus was praying that his enemies would be enemies no longer. And spoiler warning, where the plan is we're gonna we're gonna go into to Acts after this. And in Acts chapter 2, at Peter's sermon on Pentecost, Peter preaches, he says, Men of Israel, you crucified Jesus, you handed him over to wicked men. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified him. These men were cut to their hearts. And that day, 3,000 people 
joined the church. Many of these men who were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus repented and came to faith in Jesus. Many even of the, the, the Sanhedrin, many of the priests who were there, who were mocking Jesus, were saved by Jesus. Brother Christian, sister Christian, Jesus Christ prayed that you would no longer be his enemy either. And he's still interceding for you. Even at this moment, he is interceding for you, not from the cross. He is interceding for you from the right hand of God. Romans 8, 34. And Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 says he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always, listen, always lives to make intercession for them. If you are saved, you are saved through Christ's intercession. If you are, you are staying saved through Christ's intercession. Jesus Christ was and is the messianic high priest. And he was about to be mocked for that very thing. Verses 35 to 39. Jesus is mocked by those present. There was a group of people who, who stood by watching Jesus as he suffered. Now, there were clearly some of those who were standing by that, that were true disciples. The Apostle Paul, or rather the Apostle John tells us in John 19 that, that, that he himself, that John was there, the, John the Apostle was there along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and a few other women. So it wasn't entirely a hostile crowd. But the larger crowd that Luke is speaking of here was, was ambivalent at best. In Psalm twenty-two, seventeen, again, it's a fulfillment. They, they stare and gloat over me. They were, they were staring and gloating over Jesus. You see, public execu execution was a popular event in that, in that day, and, and Jesus was famous. They all knew about Jesus. He was famous or, or infamous from the perspective of many. And if you wonder at, at the bloodlust that this crowd had in the presence of Jesus on the cross, consider just for a moment how, how popular violent movies and, and violent video games are in our culture. We're really not very different. But the focus here is on those who mocked Jesus. This is again a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Let's, let's just let's turn there this time. Psalm 22 is a few verses, 6 to 8. Just read it. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Again, a clear fulfillment as Jesus is mocked here at the cross. Like the others before him. They mock Jesus for his messianic role. Jesus has been mocked in his messianic role as prophet, priest, and king. Remember the, the high priests mocked Christ in his prophetic office in Luke 22, verses 63 and 64, as they, they blindfolded, him, blindfolded him and then struck him and then said, prophesy, tell us who hit you. And then remember that Herod and his soldiers mocked Christ in his kingly office in, in Luke chapter 23, verse 11, as they treated him with contempt and mocked him by wrapping him in a royal robe and then sending him back to Pilate. So Jesus has already been mocked in his prophetic office and his kingly office, and now he's going to be mocked in his, prophet, in his priestly office as well, and, and also again in his kingly office. There are three groups here mocking Jesus in his messianic role. Again, both in his priestly and kingly office. They're presented in, in, order, in decreasing order of status. The rulers in verse 35, the soldiers in verses 36 to 38, and the criminal in verse 39. But first the rulers, the, the Jewish authorities get the ball rolling. 
They scoffed at Jesus, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. He is the Christ of God, as chosen one. So they mocked him as Savior. They mocked him as the Messiah. The Jewish authorities knew that Jesus claimed to be the Savior, but they didn't understand salvation. They did not understand what salvation was from, what salvation was for, or how that salvation was to be accomplished. They thought that salvation meant deliverance from Roman occupation for the purpose of of freedom from bondage. And they understood the, the Messiah to be a conquering king. And Christ is all of those things but in a way that is more greater than anything that they ever imagined. They accused Christ of not being able to save himself, let alone anyone else. But salvation only comes through Christ. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So how does that salvation take place? Well, Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. Yeah, under the old covenant, the, the requirement was, it was do this and live. But, but again, it all pointed to Jesus Christ who was the only one who would ever do this. Who would only ever be obedient to God. Under the old covenant, the high priest's role was to take the blood of the, of the Passover lamb for the guilt of the people into the, the Holy of Holies. And he would, would sprinkle that, that blood on the, the mercy seat. representing the forgiveness of God for the sins of his people. Now, of course, we know that that nobody was ever saved through the blood of animals. Hebrews 10 says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those who were saved under the Old Covenant were saved by looking ahead to the fulfillment of the Old Covenant in the New Covenant. Again, if you want to talk about these things afterwards, I'd be, be more than happy to explain them further to you. They, they were, those who were saved in the Old Testament were saved because they were looking to Christ in the New Testament. They were looking ahead to what that blood represented. Now, of course, they wouldn't have understood these things to any way the same extent as we do now living after these events took place. But they understood that somehow that God would atone for the sins of the people. And so Jesus Christ, in his priestly office, fulfills that. The Passover lamb points to Christ. The high priest who offered the sacrifice points to Christ. As John the Baptist declared in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they say here, here, if you are the Christ of God, if you are the Christ of God, his chosen one. Turn with me for a moment, please, back to Luke chapter 22, 66 to 71. We, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Again, if you are the Christ. Well, Jesus had declared to them when they asked him, are you the Christ? He replied, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus said something very similar in Luke 21, 27. And they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Jesus is saying that he is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. And the the Jewish authorities knew full well what he meant. He was saying even more. He's saying that he was claiming to be in a position of supreme judgment, that he would come even to judge them. So Jesus just referred to himself as the Son of Man, but aghast they ask him, are you the Son of God then? Again, they understand that Jesus, this blew their minds. Jesus is saying he is the Son of God. And he said to them, you say that I am. He's saying, you said it, not me, but I'm not going to deny who I am. They're beside themselves with anger. He was claiming to be equal to God. And in their mind, this was blasphemy. If anyone else was saying it, it would have been blasphemy. But the blasphemy was theirs. 
and denying that Jesus is the Christ and denying that he is the Son of God. And so they presumed to pronounce judgment on Jesus and they dragged him to Pilate to crucify him. This is a fulfillment. Fulfillment of, of Deuteronomy 21. Where we read that in 21, or 22 and 23 that a, 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 a hanged man is cursed by God. If, you were, if somebody was, was hanged from a tree, they were deemed cursed by God. But then Galatians 3.13, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of this because he was cursed by God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For again, quoting Deuteronomy 21.23, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And to this day, the, the Jews stumble over this because they, 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 they say, well, how can you be the chosen one of God if you're, if you're cursed by God? It's, they just don't, they don't put it all together. The same thing when, when you talk to a Muslim about the gospel. When, when you talk to a Muslim about Jesus, they're happy to say that, that Jesus was born of a virgin. They're happy to say that Jesus performed miracles. They're happy to say that Jesus will reign in a, in a millennial reign. They're even happy to say that Jesus was sinless. But they will not say that Jesus died. They believe that somehow, whether it was Judas or somebody else who miraculously took Jesus' place on the cross, it wasn't, wasn't Jesus who suffered on the cross. It was Judas instead. They do not understand. Cursed is everyone who's hanging on a tree and that Jesus was cursed by God so that we could become the righteousness of God. These men mock but they're actually speaking the truth. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is of God. Jesus is God's chosen one. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father himself had declared this of, of his son. He said that Jesus is my chosen one. Listen to him. Luke 9.35. Now Luke here doesn't record that the mockers wagged their heads or that they, they charged him with saying he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Matthew 27.40. He's speaking there of the temple of his body. Matthew has an additional taunt in, in Matthew 27, 43. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. So these Jews, these Jewish leaders, in the hardness of their hearts and the rebellion against God are mocking the Son of God. Okay, I need to move more quickly now. Some of you will be relieved. Now the soldiers join the chorus. They offer him sour wine. This is a, a cheap wine vinegar. It was meant to be an insult. Uh, Matthew and Mark record Jesus actually drinking the wine. Again, this is the fulfillment, this time though of, of Psalm 69. Again, written around 1000 BC, verses 20 and 21. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my, my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And now they pick up the taunt of the Jews. If you are the king of the Jews, listen, save yourself. So first of all, they're, they're mocking him as king. Remember, this was the charge that the Jews had used against him to get Pilate to condemn him. They took a, a religious charge that, that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, that he claimed to be the Son of God, and then they, they twisted as they brought it before Pilate and made it a political charge so that, the, that Pilate would, would order his execution. They, they accused him of insurrection. They accused him of being a king who claimed to be a rival to Caesar. And for the Romans, this was a capital crime. It was punished with crucifixion. Very, very devious. And so Pilate mockingly wrote an inscription and, and placed it above Jesus' head on the cross in a placard called a, a titulus. This is a, a statement of the victim's crime. And all four evangelists describe this, but, but John 19, 19 gives a full statement, giving Jesus' name and his origin and accused crime. Pilate is, uh, John writes, Pilate also wrote an inscription, put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And again, this was absolute truth. Jesus is the King of the Jews. But not just the King of the Jews, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And now they... They echo the taunts of the Jews. 
They mocked Jesus in the same way, saying, Save yourself. Save yourself. And now a criminal joins the chorus. Verse 39, one of the criminals who was hanged railed at him. Now in the original language, he blasphemed Jesus. He ridicules, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So like the Jews and the soldiers, he's actually speaking the truth. But in his blind unbelief, this unrighteous man, this terrorist, mocks the righteous Savior. He sarcastically mocks Jesus. He doesn't believe that Jesus can save anyone, him or himself, or Jesus can save himself. Matthew 27, 44 says that, that both of the robbers actually reviled Jesus in the same way. But praise God, not for long. Verses 40 to 43. Jesus promises life to one perishing. Now the other thief comes to his senses. Again, only Luke records this, this incident. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? This is from the cross. He's yelling across Jesus to this other thief who's been mocking Jesus. He recognizes the hypocrisy of taunting Jesus from the one who is under judgment. This criminal clearly sees that he and the other criminal are under judgment. But notice it is not under Roman judgment. He recognizes that they are under God's judgment. They are under God's judgment. He recognizes that he deserves this judgment. Friends, this is a confession of sin. This is evidence of the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in his heart. This is a miracle. This is a miracle of salvation. He says, do you not fear God since you were under the same condemnation and we indeed justly for we were receiving the reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. It's a confession of guilt. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I've talked about this many times, but that, that word that it's translated confession here. In Greek, it's homologio, which means to say the same thing. So he's saying, I'm guilty. In your eyes, I'm guilty. I, in my eyes, I'm guilty. I've got nothing. I've got no excuse. I'm laid bare before you. I am just guilty. But people aren't just saved by confession of sin. There's lots of people who confess. There's lots of people who say they're guilty. It's not just confession of sin, but confession of Christ. Confession of guilt is not enough, but he goes on to confess Christ. He confesses to Christ's innocence, that he's able to save, and that he is truly the king. And he said, verse 42, Jesus, remember me, when you come into your kingdom. This is a shocking theological statement. This is one of the most profound theological statements that you will find in the scriptures. On the lips of a terrorist who had no theological training. We have no, there's no sense that he had ever come under the influence of Christ and his ministry. But he is confessing Christ. He's confessing Christ's innocence. He's done nothing wrong. Because he's confessing that Christ is able to save. Remember me when you get your kingdom. And he's confessing that Christ is a king. He is truly the king no matter what the mockers are saying. The Holy Spirit is at work in his heart. This is faith. This is repentance. He is testifying of faith in Christ. He's appealing to Christ for the forgiveness that only Christ can give him. He's confessing that Christ is able to save. He's declaring again, contrary to the, to the taunts, that, that when that Christ will receive his kingdom 
as much as it doesn't look like that, as, as he's hanging there on the cross, he has supernatural faith to believe that, that somehow there is, after this life, that there is another life and something better than this life in which Christ is going to rule. Again, he's not just believing the facts about Jesus, but he's believing that Jesus can actually save him. Now Jesus gives him, this is one of the best theological statements in Scripture. Jesus now gives him one of the best promises found in Scripture. A personal promise that he would be present with Christ in paradise. Verse 43, and he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. He doesn't need to say truly. Everything that he says is truly. But when Jesus says truly, this is like a double stamp saying this is the absolute truth. What I'm saying to you is an indelible promise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now he was looking for something better. He didn't think about paradise. Now, paradise is, it was a Persian word, and, and it, it referred to, uh, to, uh, to a garden. And you see this in, in Babylon as well, that, that those who are, are given favor with the king have garden rights. So in the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, that someone would have, would have the rights to, when they're under the favor of the king, they'd have the rights to enter the garden. Okay, and they have the rights to, to enter the garden actually in the presence of the king. What does that make you think of? The Garden of Eden. Back prior to the fall, when in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. So this is, in fact, the same word that is in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. The word paradise is the same word, is the same word that's here. This is the word that's used for to describe the Garden of Eden. He's saying, you will walk with me in renewed heaven, renewed earth. We'll enjoy fellowship. Paradise is great, but paradise with God is not great. Far from it. But he's saying you'll be with me in paradise. We'll be together forever in paradise. And the, the, the thief on the cross was, he was thinking, well, maybe sometime down the track. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Today, today you'll be with me in paradise. Your life is going to end my life is going to end. Jesus was raised on the three days later. But this man, when he died, immediately went into the presence of the Lord. Again, it's the, the best part is in paradise. It's the with me part. Those who die in Christ move into the, the intermediate state consciously aware of God's blessing and being in God's presence. This is not soul sleep. Some believe this is not purgatory, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. This is a conscious presence. This is conscious presence of the Lord. Those who die in the Lord immediately go to be in the presence of the Lord. So there is hope for our departed loved ones, for those who are dead in Christ. We, we grieve over Lori Crick. I prayed with, with Lori Crick every week for 10 years. I miss him. I missed him when he, when he moved to Alberta. But he's not missing me. He's with Christ. He's in the presence of Christ. So let us grieve those who have passed. But let us not grieve like those who have no hope. This thief on the cross experiences what we would probably call a, a deathbed conversion. There is hope for this man. There's hope for, for, for others. We've lost it in the last, we don't know what happens in the last moments of some life, and then with our last breath, they call out to Christ for forgiveness. We can't make pronouncements on, on someone's eternal destinies. We say that only those who trust in Christ are with Christ in the presence of Christ. We see in this the, the election of God. We see the sovereignty of God and salvation. That, that What was the difference between these two men? They both saw. They both heard the same things. 
But one was saved. One repented, and the other didn't. Again from J.C. Ryle, one thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. So there is such a thing as a deathbed experience, a deathbed salvation. But don't rely on that. Because death might come for you suddenly. There's no promise that you're going to get that opportunity tomorrow. Today could be your dying day, so let today be your repenting day if you're not yet in Christ. There's there's a clip that I posted on our our church Facebook page a few months ago from Alistair Begg. And and if if you're not familiar with Alistair Begg, I really commend him to you. He is one of my favorite living preachers. But he's talking about He's talking about the, the, about the thief on the cross. And he talks, it says if, if, if you were to, if, if he was to go to, metaphorically, to, to the angels at the, at the gates of heaven, and, and, just, and the, the angel was to say to him, what are you doing here? He said, I don't know. Again, quoting Alistair Begg, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? On what basis are you here? He said, well, the man in the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come. That, friends, is the only answer. The man on the middle cross said I could come. If you are looking to your faith, your works, your righteousness, your baptism, your taking the Lord's Supper, your doctrine, your anything. You're denying the reality of the gospel. The only right answer is the man in the middle cross said I could come. You don't answer in the first person. It's in the third person. It's not I anything. It's he did it all. He did it all. And this man on the cross received the glorious promise from the lips of Christ himself. John Chrysostom is recorded as saying, I can show a man that by faith without deeds lived and came to heaven. But with, without faith, never a man had life. The thief who was hanged when Christ suffered did believe only, and the most merciful God justified him. And no man shall say, because no man shall say he lacked time to do good deeds, or else he would have done them. The truth is, I will not contend therein. But this I will surely affirm, that faith only saved him. Christ hanging on the cross was willing to save others. His unwillingness to save himself does not reflect any inability to save others. And he demonstrated this in his prayer, his priestly prayer and his promise of paradise. Christ promises life to all who trust in him. Are you trusting in Christ? Are you trusting in a crucified, a risen Savior? There is no salvation given under any name, under heaven, whereby anyone can be saved. It is only through Christ and Christ alone. Perhaps for the the first time, you're hearing some of these things, and and this is, again, your opportunity to, to repent and to turn to Christ in faith, trusting that He is able to do what you could never do yourself to earn the salvation and favor with God. And if you're, maybe you're here as a, as a long-time Christian and, and maybe you've, you've drifted from some of these things, maybe you, you've forgotten the blessings of the gospel, may God remind you through the power of His Spirit today, may you understand that you need this gospel today, you need this gospel every day. Well, next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the death of Jesus. We'll look at some of the events and see how this also accomplishes our salvation. But may God empower our faith to look to Christ and live 
Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we reflect on the cross of Christ, may you help us to never let our minds drift away from the the full and final salvation that he has accomplished for us. May we never look to ourselves, to our works or or our anything. May may we never see even that, that our sins are too great Because how great as, our, as, as great as our sins are, we have a far greater Savior. Help us, I pray, through the power of the Spirit to have life in Christ and to rejo- rejoice in the life that we have received in Christ through his precious gift. It's in his name we pray. Amen.